Welcome to the podcast from Commonwealth Magazine. I'm Michael Jonas. It's safe to say Rachel Rollins has taken the Suffolk DA's office by storm. It was just a year ago that the reform-minded change agent took the reins as Suffolk County District Attorney, and she has clearly made a mark. Rollins has ruffled feathers with her declaration that her office won't, in most cases, prosecute a list of 15 lower-level offenses. She has gone to the Supreme Judicial Court twice and won both times when district court judges tried to overrule the authority she has over whether to prosecute a case. And she's not shied away from publicly speaking her mind and offering criticism when she thinks it's warranted, including of the governor. And Rachel Rollins is here with us on the podcast, and uh, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, so it's been a little over a year, and um, I remember at one point uh, you were remarking uh, to folks that, you know, you've been, uh, I may get the numbers a little wrong, you've been a lawyer for, you know, 20-some years, you've served as a prosecutor for seven, eight, or nine years, but, you know, you've been an elected official and a public official for just a few months, and yeah. that it's a different, uh, it's a different uh, world that you're stepping into. Uh, for sure, for sure. I, I say I've been a human for 48 years, there we go. a lawyer for 20, and a DA at the time for like three months. So I'm a newborn, um, but we are learning and growing exponentially and getting better with every, um, with every situation we find ourselves in. And what's the experience like been for, the, for this year? I mean, it's just sort of, I imagine, been kind of a whirlwind. And uh, I mean, how, is it, is it sort of what you anticipated, expected? Have you been sort of, uh, what have you been really surprised by? I'm really surprised um, by just how talented and hardworking. I knew I had inherited a really good um, group of individuals working in that office, but just how complicated the municipal and district court cases are. I think many people that aren't lawyers or even lawyers that aren't criminal prosecutors or criminal defense lawyers kind of poo-poo the municipal and district court cases and only really focus on the part one crimes or the serious felonies. Um, And the times when I've been in hot water, quite frankly, in my first year have overwhelmingly been in the municipal and district court cases. They're incredibly nuanced. Um, We have some of our youngest, most inexperienced lawyers, because I'm proud to say as DA's offices, we get to hire people right out of law school. My background, Michael, is as a federal prosecutor. You can't work at the U.S. Attorney's Office unless you've had at least three years' experience um, prior to getting there. So I think I was surprised by just how um, talented and hardworking um, and dedicated this staff is. And then I think the political side of my job has been a bit surprising as well. I mean, how so? Well, I'm used to talking and nobody caring or listening, I guess. That's definitely not the case <laughs> yes, anymore, and right? I will say um, what I'm proud of is I haven't changed who I am. So I feel as a 48-year-old person who was elected to do this job, I'm proud that I was very honest and transparent about who I was going to be, and then I am that person now as an elected official. So it's been surprising the reaction because I told everyone what was going to happen when I won, um, and then we won. And people were really surprised when it started happening. Right. And you, uh, I mean, how do you, how would you describe yourself as brash, uh, plain spoken, or I don't know, how, how do you put it? I think people again. Honest. <laughs> I yeah. think I would describe myself as honest. Right. And at times, um, blunt. Right. Um, and I don't necessarily think that is a 
bad thing. I know there's usually a negative connotation there, but we don't have time for the explanation, honestly. And for me, I defy you to find a time, you will, I'm sure, and I'd love to be defied, but um, where I just woke up one morning and said, I'm going to say something sort of flippant to our governor or flippant about X, Y, or Z. It's in reaction to things happening. Mm -hmm. And what you don't get to do is roundhouse kick someone in the face and then expect them to just smile. When you do that, you better be ready to, is this Conor McGregor, right? Or is this... (laughs) You know, I don't know who you are, but, you know, is it somebody who's going to do nothing or somebody who's going to do something? Right. And you better be ready for either of those things to occur. Right. I just don't think they thought I'd do anything. Right, right. I mean, in the case of the governor, I know the, uh, I mean, a couple of incidents that have occurred. One was when uh, his public safety secretary sent you a letter uh, kind of voicing uh, some concerns, I guess one might say, about about uh, some of your policy approaches, but, but dropped the letter to uh, – to the press, you know, almost at the time you got it or maybe even before you got it. And uh, that seemed a little unorthodox, a little uh, maybe not, not, the, not the way uh, to go. And you didn't appreciate it, and you said so. Yeah, I just – what I said was the criticism I can absolutely take. Right. He had the memo because I had mailed it to him uh, because when I issued the memo, I sent it to the 75 stakeholders all throughout Suffolk County and said, I welcome a discussion – about this. I remind everyone, when I was a candidate, I called all of these people to speak with them. None of them took my calls because they were sure I wasn't going to win. Right. So, you know, uh, for me, it's just, it's disrespectful to the people of Suffolk County. Right. right. As the first woman to ever have this job, and this office started in 1806, um, I'm the 16th DA, the first female, and I'm the first woman of color to ever have the job in the Commonwealth. They wouldn't have done this to Dan Conley. They wouldn't have done it to Ralph Martin. And, you know, I said that out loud. Right. And then I said um, they would have picked up the phone and said whatever they wanted to say. And had they done that first, I would have no problem with right. what they were saying. And, I mean, it seemed to upset you so much that you sort of tossed a barb back about, you know, the issue of sort of not necessarily just disparate treatment that you might be getting, but that the focus of your policies had to do with folks who had gotten sort of the you know, sort of short end of the deal in a lot of ways in our criminal justice system. And you made a reference that not everybody kind of gets the privilege the governor's family might get, which, again, people were a little taken aback by that. Well, yeah, that's interesting. So I wasn't upset. I was, it was disrespectful. And it wasn't necessarily about me. It's about people that voted for me, 82%, who finally believe that their voice is going to be heard. And when you treat this office that way, and in particular, I, I actually like Secretary Turco. We have a good relationship now, right. but Secretary Turco is appointed, and Governor Baker nor Secretary Turco are lawyers. Uh, so I don't kick doors open at Mass General and say, it's his heart, take his heart out, because I'm not a surgeon, right? So just for me, it was leave the people who know how to do this, please, to do their job, or at least have a conversation with us first. Mm-hmm. And yes, when I when asked a question, I did point out there are significant wealth and race-based disparities in the criminal justice system, and not everyone gets the benefit of having the state police at their beck and call mm-hmm. and the ability to hire a ropes and gray lawyer at, to the tune of $1,500 an hour to sweep away a situation that happened. I think if that had been maybe you know 
a different family and a different circumstance as the chief legal counsel of Massport, who oversaw the Massport Police Department and worked at Logan Airport, and the DA of Suffolk County who handles sexual assaults. I think I'm a very qualified person to speak to you about and by the way, a former assistant U.S. attorney, mm-hmm. I think uh, there's no one more qualified to speak to me about that incident that happened on that plane to say it was handled very differently than had it mm-hmm. been just a regular civilian. Right. right. Um, but right. for me, it was about a conversation being had first. Right. And what I can tell you, having worked in the Patrick administration and being the general counsel for the secretary of transportation, had the secretary of transportation written a letter to an elected official that looked that way without checking with Governor Patrick, they would have been terminated. Mm -hmm. So I knew, the governor knew about this. So this aw shucks sort of, what happened? Wait a minute. I don't buy it, right? right? Right. And the apology made clear that he did. Right, right. And you've not, I mean, I think as a a public figure now, you've also not, uh, you know, shied away from sort of speaking out on things that might not directly relate to the office. I mean, the most recent thing, I guess, I'm just thinking of since we're talking about the governor, was this quip he made at the at the Martin Luther King Day event to Congresswoman Presley about that was quite a rant or something, and, and, and that, uh, you know, a lot of people were troubled by it. But, I mean, you spoke out. I don't know if that's, you know, DAs in the past maybe would have said, well, that's not really my thing. I'm sticking, you know, I'm, I'm running the prosecutor's office. But, uh, I mean, you feel a certain... Well, DAs in the past, DAs in the past haven't been black women. Right, number one. There you go. DAs in the past haven't been. I was on the stage. I gave Marvin Gilmore an award Mm -hmm. that day, and um, you know the attorney general, who's also not a black woman, made a comment about it as well and thought it was not appropriate. Right. So for me, um, anything relating to, uh, and and let's just be clear. At a Martin Luther King Day event, during a discussion about the state of like racial issues in Boston and Massachusetts, with the first black female congresswoman in the history of our Commonwealth, who had shown up, you know, for the first time in public after announcing she had alopecia, our governor said she was on a rant. And the word, it's not a quip, right? It is right. actually insulting. So for me, it's... If I had said that, I guarantee you, you wouldn't be saying it was a quip. You'd say like, you know, disrespectful Rollins. It, so it's just, it's this, it's very fascinating to me that, you know, hypothetically, if there was a governor that had any number of state police scandals, we're on what number now, Michael? Seven? I'm sorry. Are you, is that a yes? Well, I, I'm not keeping track, yeah, but I am. there are a lot. <laughs> right. So I agree. we've disbanded Troop there. E. Right. We had problems with Troop F. The entire state police overtime scandal started based on racism. There was Mm -hmm. an Asian woman that was pulled over, if you read the Globe article, and when she had the gall to write back and complain, all the state police cared about was not the racism of the officer, but the date was wrong. And that actually triggered the entire investigation into this overtime scandal and people showing up. We have chief... Former Chief Justice Wolf of the U.S. District Court of Massachusetts saying, is this a conspiracy? Is this a RICO conspiracy? The tea is on fire. And what we're saying all the time is like, you know, this person has great hair. And I agree (laughs) that Governor Baker has really great hair. But I just want you to remind you that um, 
I got three months in office and people were saying the world was going to end because D.A. Rollins is looking at data and science and saying we're going to look at things differently in a failed system. Right. And these individuals have had five years with all mm. these things happening. And it's like, hey, give them some time. <laughs> all right. So to me, I just hypocrisy. I can't be quiet about. It's just it's I'm not capable of doing it. Yeah. Um, I'm curious a little bit about uh, I mean, your relationship sort of in the. In the, in the law enforcement world, and I'd love to hear a little bit about things with uh, the Boston police, uh, you know, which I guess is the, is, are the folks you work most closely with. But I, I also would love to sort of hear about uh, the sort of relationship with the other sort of your, your, your fellow top prosecutor, and that would be on the federal side, Andrew Lelling. And as, as, as I think a lot of people probably saw, you and U.S. Attorney Lelling were sort of named fellow Bostonians of the year by the Boston Globe. There was a nice picture of you. And and I, I'm guessing you probably hung out there as they're doing the picture. Yeah. It takes a lot of time to do that. And yeah. and yet you've uh, uh, both, I mean, you're going at things, you know, I think it's safe to say with very different perspectives on, on issues, you know, you know, most prominently this kind of question of how we treat immigrants, undocumented immigrants in sure. the country. And safe consumption sites um, and other things. Yeah. A, a lot of things. So, I mean, how do you... Uh, well, first of all, I have said I have a deep respect for U.S. Attorney Lelling. Um, we were colleagues. We didn't work together often when I was there or, or at all. In the U.S. Attorney's in the, Office. In the U.S. Attorney's uh-huh. Office. But um, I have a deep respect for the work that he's done. And I thought Neil did a really good job of writing that article and sort of blending us together a bit, even though, you know, we, we each of us believes no one is above you know, either above the law or everyone should be treated equally, right? The, the sort of two sides of that coin. Um, but you can land in very different places land, but with you know those what? beliefs, But let right? me make it clear. Yeah. We have landed in the exact same place with the Jassy Carrera kidnapping mm. murder, right? And Andy, U.S. Attorney Lelling, came um, and was involved deeply in that because, of course, Jassy was kidnapped in Boston, Um, We believe uh, that she was murdered in Rhode Island and her body was found in Delaware. And because at the time we could not prove that she had been murdered in in Suffolk County, which we have exclusive jurisdiction over homicides uh, as district attorneys, um, we worked in collaboration with the FBI, Rhode Island, you know, um, Delaware, uh, all, all the different parts of law enforcement. And we we are lockstep together with respect to that. When it came to the ICE litigation, where we filed a preliminary injunction, I called U.S. Attorney Lulling prior to filing that, and we had a conversation. I think you can be respectful and disagree. Is that the litigation that was uh, D.A. Uh, Ryan, Ryan and Ryan. Middlesex? Yes. Was so the well. D.A. Ryan, so Middlesex and Suffolk, as well as uh, the Chelsea Collaborative mm-hmm. and Lawyers for Civil Rights and, and CPCS, um, and Goodwin Proctor was our law firm. So we... I have always operated, and just like I, I have no personal animus toward the governor. I actually like him quite a bit, and I think he's a really strong leader. I'm just saying I'm not going to be silent because I think he's a nice person. It, you don't have a black secretary in your administration. As the DA, there are over 80 superior court judges in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Three of them are black. I can assure you, Michael, I invite you, in fact, to come to Suffolk Superior Court with me and sit one day and tell me whether 2% of our criminal defendants are black. And the people that are listening that are saying, well, race shouldn't matter and whatever, but 
if the person who arrests you doesn't look like you, the person who walks you up the back of that, you know, elevator to get into the courtroom doesn't look like you, your prosecutor, your public defender, the clerk, probation, or your judge, you're going to believe the system is stacked against you, and we have to be better to make sure that we are looking for qualified people of color. I can assure you they are out there. Having served on the JNC, a judicial nominating commission under the Patrick administration, we just have to do more work. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to ask, I, I mentioned in the introduction that there have been, and maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but there have been at least two, two uh, issues that you've been involved with that have gone up to the SJC that had to do with, I think, uh, similarly kind of your authority as the DA over decisions on prosecution. Mm-hmm. And in both of these cases, again, to your point about a lot of the really sort of controversial things have happened around pretty low-level things. I mean, this was a, you know, one of them was an was arrests at a demonstration. Mm-hmm. And, um, and Straight bribery. Right. And the other one involved uh, uh, the, the young well, man, Somali the Somali immigrant, immigrant yeah. uh, in, a, in a case involving uh, a, a robbery or larceny from some years back. But in both cases, uh, you know, it, it ended up that, you know, you had to go all the way to the state's highest court to get kind of a ruling saying, yes, the DA, you know, speaking of lanes, like yeah. this is her lane, yeah. was to decide and, and, in the straight pride this, parade, you wanted to this, dismiss these cases. Yeah. And we've had this power for centuries. Right. <laughs> so, And I mean, what did that tell you that, I mean, were you struck by the fact that, that, that you kind of had to go all the way to the state's highest court to get what, you know, did no. seem like a pretty clear... Of course it's clear. I mean, so I just like people being reminded that Nobody had a problem with prosecutorial discretion when we were on a freight train going 300 miles an hour toward mass incarceration. But now that I'm here and saying, can we slow this down a little bit or maybe turn the train around? Everyone's like, what the, you know? So for me, it's just, um, there are lots of people invested in the system working exactly the way it is. Mm -hmm. And People are very surprised that now the DA's office is saying, yeah, we're not going to appeal that or um, we're not going to appeal just because we can. Right. Is this something we want that's worth fighting for? Mm -hmm. Right. Number one. Number two, with my limited resources, where do I want to spend my time? Because, Mm -hmm. Michael, the Commonwealth magazine has done tons of great work or Mass Inc. Mm -hmm. regarding the geography of crime. Right. Right. And when we look and see where are we spending we, me and the commissioner and others spending most of our time in Suffolk County, it's certain areas that have the highest, you know, non-fatal shootings or homicides or, you know, kidnappings or rapes, serious, serious charges. And if we are going to be clogging up our system with low level crimes and knocking on a door that has an unsolved homicide in that house to ask them about a trespass, we look like we don't know what we're talking about. So um, for me, I I have no problem pushing back. It's just a waste of time, though, because um, to me it just it makes me laugh because people, I don't know what they assume, but I had to, I'm very deliberate about what it is I'm doing, mm-hmm. and we have exceptional staff in our office. So things have been vetted, and we are only fighting for the things that A, we think are worth fighting for, and B, we believe we are on solid ground with respect to our position. Mm-hmm. And one thing about the case of the of the young uh, Somali man that struck me, and, and I'll be honest, I thought it sort of presented it as a bit of a 
I don't know if it's a, a dilemma, but an interesting question, and that is that, and, and I know your your general counsel Donna Patalano, who who I think uh, you know represented the office at the SJC on the hearing, said that you know it was very clear that you were looking in this case. It was a, like a ten year old case, uh, and you were looking to be able to have the charges dropped um, because it was clear that even though it was a fairly minor offense, it was going to jeopardize his ability to remain in the country where he's been since he was two. His status with a, as a permanent resident could be uh, jeopardized if that stood. So in some ways, that's a collateral consequence. Some people might say this is a case where an, an immigrant you know, sort of got a certain consideration from the office that maybe a kid you know, from Dorchester, where I live, or Roxbury, where you live, might may not have gotten yeah. because of the looking at the, the collateral consequence, sure. which was going to be very extreme for him. Yeah, so a couple things. So Bilal was born in Somalia and spent two days there, then moved for 10 years to Saudi Arabia, and mm-hmm. then then entered the United States as a refugee lawfully, mm-hmm. right? Um, so our immigration system was going to, as a result of a larceny under 250, so not good behavior, but under $250 worth of merchandise was stolen from a pushcart. For nine years, he had done everything he was supposed to. There was maybe one or two small technical parole viola- probation violations, so you didn't pay a fine or something like that. I think there was one arrest for a more serious charge, but that was that ended up being dismissed, that and, case. And so he essentially was going to be sent back to a place where he had spent two days 28 mm. years ago. Right. And he had gone through more than words. He had the CEO of more than words advocating on his behalf. It's a local nonprofit yep. that works with kids. Right. He had his employer. He was working 55 to 60 hours a week as a sous chef, saying he's a great employee. He's turned his life around. For me, this sort of extreme collateral consequence was more than I could sit still and do. Yeah. And the fact that a judge was banging their hands down to say, but we want to be right and let's send him back to Somalia is just a, a shame for me, number one. Number two, even if, Michael, you had done the same thing and you were from Dorchester and you told me, I've turned my life around, I was born in this country as were 17 generations before me, I want to go to school, but my conviction won't allow me to get a student loan, I would consider doing the same thing for you. Mm -hmm. Because what this is exposing is if our system really is about you make a mistake, you pay your debt to society, and then you get to move on with your life, let's let them actually move on with their life. Mm -hmm. Um, There are certain things you need to hear me say. I've been asked for an individual that committed rape to... um, look back at that case and see whether I would step in because he was going to be deported as a result of that. And I said, that is not a place where I'm going to step in. But if you engaged in a larceny under 250 nine years ago, and you're going to be sent and you haven't done anything since then, and you have letters of recommendation and support from nonprofits in your employer a full family that shows up to support you at all of these hearings, I want to step up and make sure we do the right thing. Mm-hmm. And about these sort of lower-level offenses, which, uh, you know, it's certainly, I know, not the sole uh, focus of what what uh, your changes have been about, but it's the thing that's gotten, uh, you know, the most attention, these 15 low-level low level offenses. Uh, there's kind of two different storylines, I feel like we've heard. One is that, that 
this was something that the office had been doing to a large extent before without sort of telegraphing it or, 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 or saying as much. But uh, at the same time, I mean, you've, you've, you have sort of, you know, put down a marker on this. And, and, and we've had people saying this is a great way to show how, you know, we're not going to let people get kind of caught up in a system that kind of, you know, that sucks them in and from which they can't escape for smaller things and it kind of can, you know, lead them down a really bad path throughout their life. Then you have other people in law enforcement saying this is a horrible thing. We're going we're gonna to see mayhem in the streets. Um, you know, h- how will we know sort of the impact and what are you doing to try to bring some scrutiny or, or data to bear on this question that has, has kind of caused so much uh, heat? We need some light. Yeah. So I think what's different about me, people say, like, is it a revolution or an evolution? Exactly. Right? And so exactly. it's both, right? So what I really want to point out when people say the sky is falling is previous administrations had been doing in these 15 or so categories of crimes, this in about 60% of the cases. Right. So when does it become crazy? 61%? <laughs> you know, so, but they never wrote it down. So right. you didn't know who it was happening for. And when we look at, you know, hypothetically, if certain sections of, of Suffolk County were receiving more null process than other sections of Suffolk County. If, you know, people in similarly situated uh, circumstances weren't getting the same result. I just think by putting it out there, so not only my prosecutors, but the criminal defense bar knows that in these circumstances, rather than the default being jail, right, um, or prosecution, let's slow down and say, is this Michael's first time in front of us? It have, or is this, um, what has he done in the last three years? Um, or is this what Michael does every other week, right? Those are three different buckets that I think we can put people in. And I'm more inclined to try to get the people who are suffering from mental health issues, substance use disorder, food or housing insecurity or, or homelessness, services rather than um, having them receive it inside of the Suffolk County House of Correction. And it's fiscally more responsible because it's $55,000 a year to send them to South Bay or Nashua Street. Um, and and Sheriff Tompkins does a really good job, but I think they should be um, receiving treatment at a facility that just handles opioid addiction, right? Or um, a facility or a place where they can actually get assistance with respect to their diagnosed DSM-5 mental health disorder, right? Mm-hmm. Not in jail. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we are penalizing um, mental uh, mental health issues and um, substance use. And, and we've seen that in circum- certain circumstances, and I've been vocal about that as well. And is there going to be a way to sort of evaluate this to sort of, I mean, you know, I know we're a year in, yeah. and and it's a year into something that's maybe more of an evolution. You're saying we went from sixty percent to something more, but but you know, I think that I I, I don't know if, if there's a way to get at sure. if we can look at well, what's been the impact of this Absolutely. sort of shift in focus? Yeah. So what's interesting is, um, you know, what I find very funny is, you know, if you Google some of the headings of like articles when I started was like, is D.A. Rollins making us less safe? Right. Um, And then it was like quotes from the police association and all these people that were saying yes and no discussion about the people that were like, we think it's let's give her a chance. She's been here for two months. Um, What is interesting 
and I would certainly not take credit for this, but um, in 2018, there were 52 homicides in Boston. In 2019, there were 38. And I can assure you, Michael, if there had been 53 homicides in Boston in 2019, I would be on the cover of the Herald for the next <laughs> three months and, and the Boston Globe as well. And not in a good way, I and, guess. And not in a good way, right? Yeah. But what I'm saying is it's, it's fascinating to me um, that people are skewed toward this is never going to work, right? right? And all I'm saying is if we look at data, um, the war on drugs – this tough-on-crime mentality hasn't worked either, and we're just proposing something different. And for me, um, we hired a, a technologist. I have a chief of innovation and strategy. We are working collaboratively. Um, we just are hosting our second Datacon where we're meeting with other DA's offices around the country because all of these organizations have incredibly old um, computer systems and so remember war games, the like computer and war games that was like, do you want to play a game? It was as big as the block that we're sitting on right now. Right. Damien is our computer system and it's awful um, and archaic and, and, and hard to maneuver. Um, so we are looking at updating all of that information, but we are collecting data um, and we're going to be issuing, I'm hoping, an annual report um, within the next month or so to show what it is that has worked. Um, and the things we need to improve on. And what's great about data is we're going to ad ad adapt. Mm -hmm. When we mm -hmm. see if it's working, we're going to continue doing it. If it's not, we're going to see whether this is a big enough sample size or how can we move. But we aren't going to hide behind this mm -hmm. um, the way that it has always happened in the past. I think this office has operated in darkness, in a cloak of darkness. And what I've done is said... This is the people's office, right? We're going to explain what we do, and we're going to be held accountable if what we're saying we're going to do isn't happening or if it's not going the way that we thought it would. Mm -hmm. All right. And, uh, I mean, a year, a year in, are you, uh, are you feeling like, uh, I mean, you're making a difference? Are you, do, you, do you wake up some mornings uh, saying, I, I, you know, I can't believe I got myself into this, or uh, do you feel... Are you, sort of I mean, energized we by are, it? We are 100 percent making a difference. Mm -hmm. Like we've sued ICE, and we're the only state in the com in the United States of America where ICE can't come into the public parts of courthouses or surrounding them and civilly arrest people. The only place in the United States, Marion Ryan and and myself and others. Um, we're bold enough to say that's not going to happen here. Mm -hmm. um, I'm proud. We have a discharge integrity team. It's the first in the nation where when an officer discharges his or her weapon, we have a, a removed from the office right. group of experts that help me mm -hmm. make that determination. Mm -hmm. um, we've issued my memo, which I'm really proud of. Um, and uh, there are many other lawyer, uh, DAs across the country, Chesa Boudin in San Francisco and others that are now, you know, the way that I used to speak about Kim Fox and Larry Krasner right. are now saying we want to look at some of the policies and things that are happening in Boston. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I'm I'm incredibly proud, Michael, of the Carol DeMady event that we had. And we were able to, on my letterhead, as the Suffolk County DA, write an apology to um, Willie Bennett, who um, was although not charged by my office, certainly the sitting DA at the time did nothing, nor did the mayor, 
to stop the media from vilifying this individual and and insinuating that he was responsible for Carolyn Christopher's brutal homicide uh, murder when, in fact, it was Charles himself. And then two nights ago, um, we had a, a private screening of Just Mercy for some local uh, Boston public school students and students from area charter schools. Um, we had in one of them, we had two nights, the ACLU, Public Defender, CPCS, Teen Empowerment, and all these other groups watching the movie with my staff. Um, and then la two nights ago, we had Fred Clay, who was a person who served 38 years um, for a crime that ultimately, uh, there were hypnotized witnesses in his trial. Uh, he had a severely flawed um, investigation, prosecution, and trial, and he was uh, exonerated by the attorney general in 2019. And he and I had a panel afterwards, and I was able to read him a letter formally apologizing for what this system put him through. We are doing great, and I am ready um, for whatever fight is coming because what I'm doing is right. And, you know, I, I like reminding people this is nothing compared to the things that I've already conquered. Right. And did you uh, – just lastly, you work so closely with the Boston police. I mean that's by far the biggest uh, jurisdiction within Suffolk County. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and I know you've got a, a good relationship with the police commissioner. And but you've had – there's been tensions with the kind of frontline officers or with their, their organization, their union, let's yeah. just say. And there's been how, tension sometimes with, with Commissioner Gross. So right? how are things going with both of those groups? And So I will say what – we are professional. That's, that's the – I know people think I'm unorthodox because I'm honest and truthful and don't hold my tongue when I think something is completely out of line or hypocritical or racist or sexist. Mm -hmm. But I will say if today, Michael, I found out that we were going to return an indictment on a DCF worker, a foster parent that was raping their children, which we've done in the – I would pick up the phone and call Governor Baker myself before the media knew that. Mm -hmm. That's what you do. Um, there's nothing he can do to change what it is I'm telling him, but why would I allow him to have to learn that opening a newspaper or receiving a phone call? Mm -hmm. It's the same thing with the president of the Boston Police Patrolman's Association. Mm -hmm. I speak to President Leary often. Is that right? To, yes, yeah. I do. And I will pick up the phone or he will call me and, you know, it's not a joke, but he'll say like, lady, you know, I don't know what, <laughs> what are you doing to me? But, but here's my point. I respect him in mm -hmm. his position enough to say, I'm going to give you a courtesy copy of what this press release says, and it's going to issue in a half an hour. And if you have questions or you are adamant about this language being out, or ask. I, I can say no or not, but there's no reason for him to feel like I'm hiding the ball from him, right? And um, same thing with Commissioner Gross. And we don't agree on everything, but we have respect for each other. And it's the same thing with Andy. Um, this isn't personal. And all of the battles that I with have Andy? with, um, I apologize, the U.S. Attorney level. Oh, okay. Jeez, <laughs> right? well, I, I now know, we know well, you're now on you know. your, um, your buddy buddy. Right, and I, he calls me Rachel, right? But what I will say, none of this is personal, and all of my battles, quote unquote, happen in court, which is where they should. Mm -hmm. I'm not, you know, instructing people to not give police reports prior to arraignments anymore because I'm mad at some. Like, all of these little things that are happening because people are upset about what I'm um, proposing the system can be or that they're upset that we're exposing 
uh, the behaviors that they're engaging in, that doesn't hurt me. It hurts the people of Suffolk County. And so I would say my relationship with law enforcement is strong. Um, whether we agree or disagree, I will show up anytime they ask me to speak, and I do. I've gone to the um, House of um, Union representatives from the Boston Police Patrolmen's Association, stayed for over an hour. Um, I have a deep respect for the officers that do um, all of the work when I see them at homicide scenes or other um, other situations. And, um, you know, I think, I think our relationship is strong, and I'm always willing to hear what it is they have to say about what they think I can do better. Great. Well, Suffolk DA Rachel Rollins, thank you so much for coming in to talk. Always a pleasure. And this has been another episode of the podcast from Commonwealth Magazine. I'm Michael Jonas. Thanks for listening. Thank you.